Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to another edition of the Talking Metal Podcast, home of all things hard rock and heavy metal. I'm Mark Striegel, host and producer of this show since 2005. Now, let's get things started with the Talking Metal theme song, written by Rob Halford, Metal Mike, and Roy Z. Six hundred and forty-seven. Wow, that's a lot of episodes. Anyways, guys, I appreciate you being here with me, listening to today's show, supporting us with an iTunes review or a PayPal donation, which you can do on TalkingMetal.com. Use those Amazon links and spread the news about Talking Metal. We're going to continue our discussion on L.A. Metal, L.A. Hard Rock, L.A. Metal, with two people who were there and experience the L.A. metal scene in its prime. And it really, uh, you know, with Steven, I don't, I'm not sure about, about Carl, but with Steven, he was there when when it blossomed and in a lot of ways helped uh, create that scene. And we're talking about Steven Piercy of Rat fame. Steven has a great new record out, really, really good record. I know I always say that when people come on. I'm like, hey, your new record's great. Um, and I say that to Steven this time around, but his new record is really great. So I recommend you check it out. He's going to tell us all about it. Then we're going to hear from Carl Alvarez from the Inside Metal documentary series. He was on the last episode with me too. And this is great. I mean, Carl goes through five kind of moments in time that he experienced uh, being a part of the L.A. metal scene. You know, stories about Axl Rose and... Molly Crew and Rat. So stay tuned for those great stories as reported by Carl, Carl Alvarez, who is one of the producers on the Inside Metal documentary series, along with uh, Bob Nelbandian. So without further ado, let's check out some brand new Stephen Piercy. This is a song called Rain. This is great stuff. And after we hear this song, we'll hear from Stephen. I do want to, before we get into the interview, just say that there was a point where Skype dropped out. I think it was when Stephen was talking about the tour dates for his solo tour. And I'm sure you can get those right on his site, which we'll have linked through today's show notes. Also, you know, I, I did try to talk about Rat. I asked him about the, the last Rat record, and I felt like he was steering the conversation back towards his new solo music. So I didn't really go down that rat road um, much after that. Having said that, there's some great stories about the, the L.A. metal scene and his history. So, again, please stay tuned for that. 
And, uh, you know, again, not a lot of breaking rat news as far as the legal battle over the name and all that type of stuff. That's kind of already all been covered in other podcasts and blogs and interviews with Stephen. This is a great interview. He's got some great new music out. Again, this song is Rain, followed by my interview with Stephen Piercy. This is Mark Striegel of Talking Metal, and on the line we have Stephen Piercy. How are you, Stephen? I'm great. How are you? Good. And I wanted to let you know that I, I got an advanced link of the new solo record, which comes out on the 27th of January. It's called Smash, and there's some really great stuff on, on this album. I was very impressed with the songwriting. A lot of, a lot of diversity, too. Um, let's, let's talk about that obviously you weren't going for a specific musical style on this i don't think because there there is a lot of diversity as i said is that safe to say uh, very safe we we um it was a deliberate thing to make sure this this record was very diverse and and was you know hit elements of light and dark and ups and downs and you know yeah, it had to go that way. Um, I didn't want it to be just a normal 
rock record that people seem to think you just throw out there, you know? Um, I can write records all day long and throw them out there and say, here's a record, maybe have one or two good songs, but this one, we really wanted it to be 110%. And it's been a, a little while since you've had new music out. Have have you been working mm-hmm. on these songs for, for for years now, or did they all kind of come together pretty quickly? Uh, How did the songwriting process go for this album? Uh, we've had, we've been working on this. It was going, it started out as sucker punch and then it turned into, uh, uh, smash. And then I was approached by frontiers music. And then I really changed tracks and said, okay, the record smash, let's get writing. And we must've had like 20 something songs ready to go and the ones that we thought were going to be the charms we started on them and and they just said put that away i i'd hear another riff from my guitar player and go nope this is the song we're working on now right so this is a process of uh making sure that we had this diversity and i think we uh achieved that absolutely i mean i hear songs that a couple songs that maybe sound like they could be rat in in the style that they are, but other songs like I mean, "Shut Down mm-hmm. Baby," for example, to me that's like a real classic rock, almost Zeppelin esque humble pie vibe about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a song like "Rain," which uh, you know, when that piano comes in, I was just really kind of taken back by that. That's a really great kind of addition to the song. Is, is who's playing piano on that? Uh, Mike, uh, our uh, uh, bass player, the okay. engineer, and yeah, that song in particular. I wrote that song about my daughter, and it, it, there, there's some, some, you know, I like I've said before. I'm glad there's a lyric sheet. It'll be the last time I put one in there. But this record really needed it. Okay. Because, you know, people really won't get the gist of what I'm talking about because I'm I'm like, I'm not all over the place because, the, it, you know, as the, as the Smasher character looks on the cover, I wanted it, the record to have that kind of, you know, that, that realm of, um, you know, dark light diversity, you know, interstellar, uh, space time you know uh, uh think about some things you know that i'm not necessarily talking about relations they could be talking about a, an apparition or a ghost or a spirit right. or a, nice. you know so there's a lot going on in there there's a lot going on um but uh we we definitely wanted to incorporate some things to make it different you know, not expected, you know, uh, people were probably expected me just to give them a record full of rock records and rock songs that are all fast and this and that and girls and this. And I'm like, no, not this time. Cool. You know? Cool. Yeah. Excellent sounding records. Some really great songs. Now you've mentioned, uh, we like we did this and we did that. Can you go through who, who the, we is who's on this record with you? Well, collectively, you know, uh, the lead guitar player, Eric Ferentinos, and I wrote most of the material. Uh, one song was co the first song was co-written by myself and another guitarist who was in my soul band. 
Um, but when I say we, we were all in these sessions together from Greg, our drummer, to Matt, bass player, engineer, producer with me, mixer, uh, Eric, same thing, helped with the uh, uh, co-producing a bit. And, you know, it was like an all for one thing. We wanted the best thing for this record and we all put our two cents in. And, you know, granted, if I had the final say, if there was something, a better idea or, uh, you know, somebody came up with something, it was entertained. You know, it was pretty much a group kind of a thing. And it, it worked very well for this record because you think you have all the answers. Well, that's why there's producers. You don't you always, you know. And so it's nice to have somebody to bounce off and who better than the guy you wrote the song with, you know? Right on. Um, cool. Yeah, so we, uh, it was a good thing. Nice. And this album also reunites you with, with Bo Hill, I guess, slightly at least. What What's Bo's mm -hmm. involvement on this record? Well, Bo Hill, the first, one of the first songs I did, which got the attention of Frontiers, was uh, I, uh, I Can't Take It, which I had written uh god well over a year and a half ago or so and it was just such a good song and he mixed and mastered that and i was like you know i, I can't get rid of this song this song has got to be heard and and the fact that i mentioned smash in there is where i got the title okay cool. uh you know and i'm i, I kind of like it kind of directed me in a way to how this record was going to be presented. Um, you know, I didn't want it to be again, this basic rock record and we couldn't get Bo to finish the record, you know, to, to get involved in the, the completion of the record. He was, he, uh, I think he was out of the country or something for a while, tried to pull in another producer. Well, he had, it was out of the country. So I'm like, okay, we know what we're doing, you know? Right. We can get this done ourselves. We've been doing this too long, you know. Let's let's go, and we did it. You know, we we did what we wanted. Cool, and and once again, you did a great job with it. And I, I hope everyone gets a chance to hear this this record, Smash. Again, it comes out on January twenty seventh, and uh, you know, there's a, a lot of news about Rat that we're hearing, and I just hope that that news mm -hmm. doesn't overshadow this. Uh, this smash record. Will you be getting out doing <laughs> dates to promote the record? Yeah. Yeah. Smash. Um, the smash tour starts. Um, and, um, and we're going to leave it at that right now until I know different. Cause I'm always adding dates, but I really right. don't like to do more than three, four shows a month. Anyway, um, and we'll take it up to July. Okay. Maybe some stuff after in between, but then, you know, rats, you know, uh, our rat, the band rat is coming to play. Um, so we have some shows out there ready to go. They won't interfere and it's a whole different breed of animal in itself. Yeah. Rat is its own schematic and, and my solo stuff is its own, you know, animal too. So there, there should be no problem there. We, we plan on doing, uh, you know, going a hundred percent with rat out uh, in the summer 
Okay. And cool. and later, yeah. Cool. I'm coming down for the uh, the M3 show, so I'm looking forward to that. That should be a good one. Yeah, that'll be good. Definitely looking forward to it. You know, and I read I read your book when it came out. Uh, I guess it had to be probably two years ago or so at this point. And, mm-hmm. you know, in the book, when when you talk about the uh, infestation record, um, it was hard for me mm-hmm. to get a, a vibe of how you f- how you felt about the record as a whole. I, I personally loved the record. What, what Now that a few years have passed, more than a few years since that record has come out, um, how do you look back on it? Um, well, I don't think it was a bad record. I, I, I don't think it was our best because we had problems in the studio that prevented some of the writers to get their songs recorded, you know, including myself. Uh, somebody left the sessions that were needed and they just bailed. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, we got the best out of it. Um, I certainly wasn't in a, uh, situation to think I was going to do anything, but somehow I did, Right. you know, I'd rewrite the lyrics every morning. Uh, and, uh, you know, we got through it and I'm surprised because when I heard that record after the fact, I was like, wow, that's us. Huh? Okay. Well, not bad. Right. Well, I mean, I've recorded records on the floor and we recorded records with somebody on the floor and then right. I've, recorded records standing up and but for this record here i was standing up nice and tall you know it's a sobering experience and and it was a good one a good place and we were very serious about what we were doing here that all of us collectively right and it wasn't like punching a clock, but we were very serious about this record we wanted we nitpicked it we did everything we could down to mixing mastering and and how how you know we wouldn't compress things so you can turn them loud in your car the louder you you turn it up the more you'll hear the instruments um which some people i've heard have a problem oh i don't hear this loud enough or i don't hear that loud enough well there's a reason for that you're supposed to turn it up louder right you know and and then you'll hear everything we we pulled out all the stops on this record. We really did. You know, we took chances and, and put it out there, tried things. If they didn't work, we didn't use them. But you, you've got to try these things. You've got to right. try it before, you know. You'll never know unless you try, right? Yeah, um, So that was our agenda. You don't know unless you try, so let's try. And that's what we did. We have some great songs that didn't make this record, but they just didn't fit the... Uh, you know, the schematic that we had going for it, that we were, that I was going to be talking about some crazy shit and the music was going to go all over the place and be very diverse and, you know, kind of immigrant song meets that's the way. Uh, I mean, I just wanted to, I just wanted to like trip to the stars, you know what I mean? Just, just see what's here, see what's there, get something out of this. And come black, come back to ground and and make it happen. Right. You on. Know? Do you listen to a lot of different styles of music? Oh yeah. Oh yes, a lot. Uh, you know, uh, to name a few. God, my daughter's turned me on to some of these younger bands that are very cool. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, I listen to a lot of stuff. New bands that come out. 
female singers, whatever it may be. And, uh, yeah, it's my job to know what's going on out there near to the asphalt, you know? Right. And I sure as hell don't want to sound like them. Who, who knows if they want to sound like me, but I knew exactly coming into here, I wanted to, you know, start some songs with choruses, which we've never really done, uh, uh extensively. And I just wanted to try new things. That's all. Just try new things. Cool. Well, I definitely look forward to hearing these songs live. Again, the album is Smash, out on Frontiers on January 27th. Um, just a couple more questions, and then I'll let you go. I, I Back it, to your book, which, again, I really, really enjoyed. You had some great stories in there. Uh, one I wanted to touch upon, Rodney Dangerfield. And I've, I've heard... Uh, Robin, back when Robin was with us, mentioned mentioned Rodney Dangerfield in in an interview too. How did you guys get to to know Rodney Dangerfield? I mean, it doesn't. It seems like kind of a bizarre combination. You hang you guys hanging out with him partying. Yeah, you know, I don't I don't know how he met him, but uh, I know he was um, when Robin and I were staying at the uh, Sunset Marquee, this hotel in between tours. He lived under Robin oh, or okay. below him in these in this building, and you know both of them were partying. The prob- Robin probably had the loudest party, and he would come down in his pajamas and harass him and stuff, and and we kind of get a kick out of that with Rodney, uh, you know, as much as I know about Rodney over there, and and but uh, we would shake it up wherever we went. We didn't care. You know, that was, that was another motto of ours. We don't care. <laughs> we do what we want, you know. And, you know, another thing in your book, Stephen, that I, I got a kick out of was the, the stories about your relationship with Van Halen, the band, Eddie, and you, yeah. I think you, you sold him an amp, I believe it was. And, and Yeah, back uh, in the day. Yeah, you hung out with those guys backstage when they were still playing the club scene. And one, one thing... I, I never really understood about David Lee Roth specifically, and I just wanted to get your take on this, was, you know, he came out of that same scene that you guys came out of a, a number of years later. And even after he was kind of a superstar, he seemed to still go back and em- embrace the, the sunset and the Hollywood sunset boulevard and the Hollywood rock scene. But yet in public, when it came to like talking about the bands that, followed Van Halen out of that scene like you or Motley Crue, like Rat or Motley Crue, he always seemed to kind of either change the subject or in a lot of ways talk down about the bands that followed them out of there. And and why do you think that was? I mean, because it seemed like when you guys would hang out with him, he was cool with you guys, but when he got with the press, he tended to kind of shoot you guys down. Well, I don't think he necessarily shot us down. They're the kind of band that they don't want competition when they play. They want, you know, uh, just a band to play with them. And it's ironic because we just rat a few years back, just played this huge festival opening up for them. And the same with Aerosmith in, in San Paolo. We opened up with for Aerosmith and never thinking we'd play with them. Uh, but me meeting them back in the day, like 78, just before they were getting signed was a, a crazy thing because I, I was a guitar player and I wanted right. to meet Ed and he found out I had some Vox amps and he needed 
excuse me, he needed one. So I happened to have one and, and, um, you know, we just had it created a relationship and then I started bringing people up there to, to, you know, hang out with them, you know, go to the shop and, and, uh, just became friends and, been friends ever since, you know, yeah. but learned, I learned a lot from them, you know, even the fun and games and how to, how to, you know, take control of your shows and, and you know, the opening acts. And, and I mean, look, you know, uh, a lot to be said for that band. They, cr- they pretty much got the whole thing kickstarted the LA scene, you know, right. right. They really, they really did. And, you know, and then you started getting the uh, the Iron Maidens and the Judas Priests and all these other bands, and then it kind of stir potted into this. Hey, there's a new scene going on, and it just so happened uh, in Los Angeles that our influences created these bands, Rat Motley's, and uh, uh, you know, Quiet Riot. I believe was already uh, back then too. Right. Uh, but it, I, I, um, Van Halen pretty much opened the doors for a lot of bands and to to be creative, to be themselves, and uh, and uh, rest is history. We took over from there. And as soon as the bands like the Motley's and the Rats started getting popular and stuff, then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there were fifty million of them. You know, right? Was there a was there like a point where I mean, because you, 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 you know, Van Halen, sure they kind of maybe started, but in a way, it, it was you know I was a kid in the Midwest at the time, and when I heard about Motley Crue and and Rat and, and was digging you guys, and I was seeing you guys sold out at the Rosemont Horizon on on the Invasion tour and stuff. My plan was, you know what? After I graduate high school, I'm going to go to L.A. and become a rock star, which I think there were probably, you know a million other kids who had the same, same dream. And it, it, you know, it was because of you guys, you know, that, that we had this dream. Mm-hmm. But was there a point that, that you just kind of shook your head and had to say, you know, this is just too much. The, the, the scene is overpopulated and it's, yeah, it's over. Of course. Yeah. It, it got oversaturated. And by that time we were still off and running. We were on the road doing arenas first so many years so like 88 89 no 89 and these new bands were all coming up and sure we had some of them open for us you know the queen's rights uh poisons and, and and it's funny you say that because poison never mentions us giving them a big break at all right and, and if it wasn't for us they wouldn't have been you know got out of the gate uh here nor there you know but uh yeah, we were just still off and running. We didn't think much about the L.A. scene. But when we'd come back, we'd go, who are these? What the hell's going on here, you know? You had like 50 million more bands on the strip, you know, right. fighting for their flyers, you know, put their flyers up. I go, we weren't like that back then, Yeah, you know? Yeah. Uh, there was only a few of us that were trying to do this, that moved to L.A. to try to do this. Next thing you know, there's this, hundreds of bands up there you know um i can't take credit for that but uh you know the scene the whole la scene definitely took credit for how motley and rat and you know the bands that came from our genre that were able to do what we did you know uh 
and give us that kick in the ass to do it, you know, because uh, eventually you have to get out of L.A. You got to go tour. You got to, you know, especially if you get a record deal and you got to get out there. And we started small, you know, headlining our own theaters and this and that. And, and next thing you know, uh, hey, you know, you want to open up a so-and-so or well, sure, who's he? Oh, that's Billy Squire. And then, you know, there you go. We're on the road with him for six months. So, yeah. And then after that, it was, we didn't need anybody to open up. We didn't have to open up for anybody, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, it was, a, I, I, it was, a. it, it could never be duplicated that scene, especially from 80, 1980. I mean, look, rocks regime and, and Mickey rat used to play Gazari's all the time. Rock's regime is striper. Uh, you know, yep. uh, so, you know, a lot of us grew up together, you know, beating the same horse, you know, um, so it was kind of cool and to be friends with some of these guys still is even, it's amazing too, you know, um, we were never at war with anybody. We didn't care. We had no competition. Our competition was ourselves, you know, just as Motley's competition was there themselves, and that's maybe why we were both, you know, as successful as we wanted to be at that time. We just said, fuck it. This is us and this is what it's going to be. Right you know, uh, we don't have to all dress the same like you and, you know, wear funny ties and, you know, uh, polka dot pants and whatever. I, I don't know, you know, uh, you know, we had to go through the system, though. It, it, it is a graduating system back then, and now it's even more so. Now it's back to pay to play. Really? Yeah. Wow. Wow. We we never had to do that. Yeah. You know, but these newer bands, yeah, right now they have to pay to play. That's what it's back to again. And so that's got to be that's a little interesting. Yeah, definitely. And are you do you still live in the Los Angeles area? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got a house and an office house up here and I'm pretty much at my office up place all the time. Right on. Uh, yeah. And, uh, it's, it is, you know, like, look, I don't know what I'm going to be doing in two years from now. You know, I know what I'm going to be doing for a year, <clears throat> but two years down the line, maybe it's time for another break. I don't know. You know, I'm allowed that, uh, that space. And more so nowadays because, you know, I don't need to be caught up in that, that dark world that we were at sometimes, you know, right. uh, you know, where our manager used to say, you know, rock and roll is a, a dangerous occupation. Well, hell yeah, it is. You don't think it is, but, uh, sure is, you know? Cool. Well, I know in your you book, you, you kind of talk about some of the, the issues that you've had with, you know, drugs and alcohol through the years. And it sounds from what mm -hmm. I'm catching, it sounds like you're, you're still staying healthy and that's great to hear. Oh yeah. Yeah. Time comes to where you gotta, you know, you want to stay in the game. You better be in shape for that game, you know? And I've decided, uh, there's some certain things I still need to accomplish. And so I'm gonna, you know, 
got it together to stay in the game. Unfortunately, some people don't, and that's cool. I have no animosity towards these people, and you, you can do what you want. You know, right. if somebody wants to take himself out, well, that's your choice, pal. I ain't mine. You know, uh, this business is what it is. You know, a lot of us forgot it was the music business. I even think the music business forgot it was the music business. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. And look where we're at now. You know, right on. Right on. Well, yeah. one thing we, we do have right now is a great new record, Smash by Stephen Pierce. Yes. It's out on the 27th. Tr- truly, I'm not just kissing your ass. I really am enjoying the record. I think it's great stuff, and I encourage all our listeners to check it out. Stephen, it's a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much. Anybody wants to know anything, go to stephen-piercy.com. Tour dates up there. Smash the rat shows are up there, and, and any new revelations will be up there, too. Awesome. Thanks so much.
That song right there, kind of a, uh, I call that a deep track, right? Off of Invasion of Your Privacy by Rat. That song is What You Give Is What You Get. Now, Invasion, you know, I used to love the record as a kid. I, I recently went back and listened to the whole thing from start to finish. I will say there's five excellent songs on the record, in my personal opinion. That is one of them right there. Of course, You're in Love. I like Never Use Love. Lay It Down, Dangerous But Worth the Risk is another good one. There's there's some good songs on that record. There's a couple uh, songs that I feel drag it down a little bit, uh, which makes it not quite as great as Out of the Cellar, which to me was a perfect record all the way through. Also the EP, that, e, that original Rat EP, another perfect listen all the way through. Um, but Invasion of Your Privacy, a great record, and a record that put Rat on top of the world. I mean, they were doing sold-out tours, uh, sold-out shows on the tour in support of that. Arenas, I saw them at the Rosemont Horizon with Bon Jovi opening on that tour. Uh, sold out, massive crowds, and uh, just at the at the top of their game at that point. Or at least uh, the top of the world as far as album sales go and popularity. It's a true honor talking with Stephen Piercy. He's been on the show before, but it was an interview probably like 10 years ago that John did. I've never interviewed him, so I always get a kick out of speaking with people who I've never spoken with before. Uh, on that note, let's get into hearing from Carl Alvarez and his top five kind of L.A. metal scene moments. This is a fun listen. Let's check it out right now on Talking Metal. Hey, this is Mark Striegel from Talking Metal, and checking back in with us on this episode, we have Carl Alvarez, one of the producers of the great Inside Metal documentary series that he has worked on with Bob Nelbandian, and we wanted to check back in with him for kind of a top five list. Carl, how are you? I'm pretty good, Mark, and thank you for having me. You know, when we're talking about the series, I, I you know, it's kind of kind of this thing where when you were there when that whole sunset strip thing before it kind of really exploded i think it was kind of cool and then when it did explode it was kind of cool right uh, but i wanted to give you like the top five experiences that i went through just being a young kid going down to the troubadour or the roxy in awesome. hollywood you know so my first experience actually my first celebrity encounter was Ronnie James Dio at, at the Troubadour, nineteen eighty three, February. Uh, he was there to see a band with uh, his wife Wendy Dio. I believe it was the Dio band that was with them. They were in the VIP section. So, Ronnie James Dio was somebody. What, what band actually, was it? Uh, the band called. Well, they were called Sarge. Uh, they turned into Rough Cut. Two guys mm. from uh, from Sarge went into Rough Cut. So who, he was kind of scouting them, I guess, in a sense. And Wendy Dio managed them, I think. Too. Right, exactly. Later on, so this is the beginnings of kind of getting the rough cut band together, you know. So uh, he was checking him out. This is Sarge's last performance, really. Wow. So, um, so it was really cool because Ronnie James Dio was a fixture. That was the first person I saw celebrity wise in Los Angeles, and you continue to see him <laughs> as years go by. So it was a, he was a major figure out here even though he was from new york he made himself an la guy so it was really cool so and and what about wendy deal was she also a major figure did you see her at a lot of shows because you know i read stephen piercy's book and he says some kind of interesting almost scandalous stuff about wendy deal in that book that, that makes her sound like she was 
really out in the scene quite a bit. Did you remember encountering her much? You know, that's the interesting thing. You know, if it was Wendy Dio on her own, I wouldn't have known. You know, she's just a person, you know. But seeing her her with Ronnie, then like, oh, okay. But you didn't think of it. Okay, that's Wendy Dio. You just think, oh, this is a woman that's with Ronnie James Dio. And that's that's kind of the end of the story when you kind of think about things because you're so enamored seeing Ronnie James Dio. I mean, it's like all the great records and stuff. So yeah, I'm sure probably Wendy was more of a behind the scenes person and probably was out there and stuff. So, uh, but again, it was like the focal point was Ronnie James Dio. So right, absolutely. So my next my next one is um, seeing David Lee Roth. Uh, at the Troubadour, who he actually did frequent a lot the bar there at the Troubadour and watch bands. I mean, he was kind of notorious for doing that. Very low key. You'd kind of have to know him maybe, and and once you would see him, oh, there's there's David Lee Ross. So this is kind of right after the US Festival. I think maybe two weeks after the US Festival, which kind of was still kind of going through. This thing with David Lee Roth was like drunk singing on stage, and it was just kind of this outrageous kind of show and this big show, obviously, this big platform show with the Ass Festival. So, um, seeing him at the True that was pretty trippy, you know, just because you just kind of could associate Van Halen. Big, right? Untouchable. So there he is. And was this a, was this like a metal show? Like what type of band was? Oh, was it was uh, Black and Blue was headline. Oh, okay. and this is in June. This is right before Black and Blue got signed to Geffen. They got signed to Geffen. I think at the tail end of June. So David Lee Roth at the Troubadour at at a Black and Blue show. You you yeah. spot him there and. Like, is he, is he, do you remember? Is he like really taking in the band? Is he just kind of schmoozing? Like, what, what is he doing there? I, I, I think he was a regular fixture there. So he's kind of like probably drinking, looking for girls type of thing. Yeah. You know, I think he was keeping the low profile thing. But, you know, for him to come into the Troubadour, it's kind of like, I'm here, I'm at home, I'm hanging out. It's not some sort of thing where I'm David Lee Roth and the doors burst open and here's David Lee Roth. It was one of, not one of those situations. So he liked to, it seemed like he liked to keep his low profile, but he was David Lee Roth. So I don't know how much he can keep a low profile. Right. <laughs> that and, explains. And that was like 83, you're talking like? Yeah, June yeah. of 83. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wow. So so one thing, you know, and I know you have a couple more you want to get to here, or a few sure. more. Um, but But Roth. The the thing I always found fascinating about him because I, I you know I've read Stephen Piercy's book I've read The Dirt um, I'm trying to think other uh, there's been other books oh Vince Neal's book that he wrote it, it appears that Roth who publicly at that time and it would always bum me out because I loved Van Halen I loved Motley Crue I loved the the L.A. scene you know even though I wasn't living in that part of the country that that scene was all of our scenes, you know, we, we, we felt connected to it, even if we were on the other side of the country, but Mm -hmm. Roth, it always bummed me out because Roth would always kind of talk downplay and talk down the bands that, that followed Van Halen, like Quiet Riot and, and Rad and, and, and even Motley Crue. But yet it seems like behind the scenes, not in not when you know not in the public eye he was kind of embracing it and what the story you're telling me about him being there and kind of being low key kind of fits in with that 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 he 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 embraced the scene even though publicly he was kind of denouncing it did, did any comments on that 
Oh, yeah. Well, I can bring up a good kind of uh, footnote to that. Uh, if you watch Pioneers, uh, the first episode, there's a drummer by the name of Stephen Quatros who played in the band with um, Tony Cavazzo and Carlos Cavazzo called Snow. Right. And he was in a band uh, during the Van Halen Club days to where they opened for Van Halen. And Van Halen came into the dressing room or into the club, sound check, didn't say a word to anybody. They were just into their own world. And, you know, I think they took that game plan like a, kind of a marching lieutenant, marching, you know, a military outfit to where, yes, they were part of the scene. They were very much a huge part of the scene, but associated with bands, no. And the competition, we we annihilate the competition. So I'm sure they had that mentality, especially David Lee Roth. Uh, yes, he probably maybe wanted to see what Vince Neil was up to, maybe kind of share his experiences because he was a brethren, but yet it was still competition and Van Halen was top dog. It would always be top dog. So. Right, right. In a national platinum selling act at that point. You know, it's it's funny because in, in The Dirt and also in Vince Neil's book, he talks about how Roth really took Motley Crue under under his wing and spoke to him about the business and he used to come to the Motley Crue parties to, you know, score Coke and, and try to hook up with chicks. And he, he really liked those guys, but then in public, he, he never ever would even acknowledge them. And, you know, there's a great story that Axl Rose has told where he was hanging out with, with uh, Roth and, and I believe it was Sebastian Bach, and at some point late into the evening, um, after many drinks, uh, Roth, who had been courteous and friendly to to Axel and Sebastian up until that point, turned to them and, and kind of went sour on them and said, you two are just imitations to the throne, which I thought was just a classic Roth, you know, which, well, which maybe, maybe shows some of his insecurity there. Well, I, I was going to say... Um, David Lee Roth's probably inspiration, I mean, is probably Frank Sinatra, you know, right. in that sense. Yeah. And everybody else was probably a Frank Stallone, you know, some copycat to him. Mm-hmm. But they were all kind of the same clan. So it's like it's a strange relationship. But, you know, I'm sure David Lee Roth kind of was chummy, but yet he knew his place in rock and roll. And he was he was the Mick Jagger and everybody else was not Mick Jagger. <laughs> <I guess. laughs> right on. Cool. Carl, what else do you got there for us? All right. Next experience. Um, you know, in 1983, at the end of it, when all the bands got signed, I remember going to this club in the Valley called the Country Club in Reseda. Yeah. One of the great places outside of just the Sunset Strip. It was in the Valley. And there was a lot of suburban kids going there. We went to see Black and Blue that night. And they had just got signed to Geffen. It was the tail end of 83. And I want to talk about this because it's the, I saw a camaraderie happen between Robin Crosby, Stephen Pierce, who were there at the soundboard. And I also see John Bush and Dave Pritchard wow. by the soundboard. And Ratten, Armored Saint, I mean, all those bands knew each other and stuff. And you could see them kind of looking at Black and Blue, who had just got signed. They were going to record a record. Rat had already gotten signed. The record wasn't coming out. They were recording it. Armored Saint was on the brink of getting signed to Chrysalis. They were only a few weeks away from getting signed. So it was an interesting time to see 
these other bands check out the competition, right. the camaraderie, kind of, kind of all coming together, and and also kind of seeing like a year from now, all of these bands' lives would change. You know, some yeah. of them got the big tours, some of them got the big sales, some of them didn't get the big sales. But yeah, you know, Ground Zero, it was it was cool to see this thing happening all those people i mean for the the listeners who might not know i'm sure most of you know but of course black and blue included uh jamie st james on on vocals just a brilliant singer who went on to do a record with warrant and of course tommy thayer who has been with kiss now for i don't know what at least 10 15 years at this point right yeah 2002 i think he joined officially but yeah so yeah these these rock dudes that were going to take over the world and it was right before they were going to take over the world. So it was, that was a really kind of cool thing to see. Awesome. So that's my, my, my third experience. My fourth experience is seeing, this is 1986. So fast forward at the Troubadour, uh, we used to go see this band called snare. The lead singer in this band was Mike Howell, who went on to sing for metal church uh, before that and in heretic, but his early band was, was snare and they were opening for a band called Hands Naughty, which came down from San Francisco. And they were kind of a glammy rock band, but I think they couldn't find – they were very popular in San Francisco, but they came to Los Angeles really because it was obvious it was a glam era at that stage, you know. Right. But for some reason, I don't know, they were either through associates, they were friends with Axl Rose. And I remember Axl Rose introducing Hans Naughty, you know, like – he, we were upstairs, and then Axel Rose came upstairs and watched the Hans Nani show. But this is about as close as I ever got to Axel Rose. He was probably two shoulders away from me, and he had his white leather jacket at this time. Guns N' Roses right. record wasn't even out, and he had people around him. You knew, like they were onto something, and these weren't like just hanger honors. These were, you know, you know, maybe players in the scene. You know, in terms of the scenesters or. Or people, but you, you could tell there was a sense like they knew that Guns N' Roses and they knew Axl Rose's star power even back then. You know, wow. like he was a star. He had those. He gravitated people towards him in that sense. So, um, yeah, I remember that just seeing Axl Rose and going, ah, this, 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 this guy's something. I don't know what he yeah. is, but he kind of had that aura around him even back then. So, wow, it's interesting. And my last experience, top five. And it's not like the most compelling thing, but it's an interesting thing for me because it was kind of like my first experience seeing. Uh, it was a show at the Roxy. It was Rat, Black and Blue, and Armored Saint, okay. April 1st, 1983. Great show, great bill. I felt like that show in particular was kind of like metal was coming together. It hadn't broke to the masses yet, but it was this, it was going to happen, you know? And I remember seeing... Pete Holmes from Black and Blue, the drummer, talking to Gonzo Sandoval after the show. And I think it seemed like they were meeting for the first time. It's like they played together maybe before that. But they were kind of like bonding as drummers in front of the Roxy. And and this is when Pete Holmes was going through his looking like Tommy Lee phase. He had the... He had the platforms on and the whole leather garb and the spiky hair. It was it was cool. And then you got Gonzo, who was Gonzo, of course, and just seeing them share that. Ex- and I think years later they s- still became friends in terms of being drummers together. And 
kind of uh, carving out the scene. So uh, it was cool to see those types of things happen in Los Angeles. So I just wanted to share that. No, that's a great list. That's a great list. And and thank you for sharing that with us, Carl. Again, Carl's documentary series, I would call it, is called Inside Metal. The, The episode two, the latest edition, is the L.A. Metal Scene Explodes. We'll have it linked through today's show notes. Uh, great stuff, Carl. And let me let me ask you. I know y- you are in the Huntington Beach area, I guess now. But but where did you grow up? It's obviously somewhere around Los Angeles. Well, I grew up grew up in Redlands, California, which is east, sixty miles east of Los Angeles. And okay. uh, we didn't have cars. I talked my friends into driving to L.A. and I told them this is going to be a great experience, and it was. And they latched onto it, and it was like a ritual for us for I think eighty three, eighty four of going down to Hollywood and being young kids and embracing the scene, not so much trying to be radically different, but there was something there and it was, it was cool. So, yeah. I'm assuming you were under 21 at that point. I mean, what was the drinking age 18 at that point or was it 21? uh, It was 21 by then, but I'll tell you a funny experience real quick. Uh, I was 17 Uh, one of our favorite bands was Black and Blue and they were endorsed by a Dutch beer company called Grolsch okay so during the show they had this big plastic bottle Grolsch bottle filled with beer and they would pass it around the audience and we would drink this now that would never happen now it's so politically politically incorrect but that was probably my first drunken in a club who that serves alcohol and we're drinking and we're minors <laughs> yeah wow <laughs> so that was a, quite an experience so 17 years old that was a good time for for metal and were, were most of these shows like all age shows all ages oh yeah. almost all were all ages i was kind of always bummed because my my dad lived up in the bay area and i always wanted to see y and t and I wasn't old enough. At 16 years old, I think, you had to be in the Bay Area clubs. And I was 15. I'm like, Y&T is my favorite band. Earthshaker? Come on. Right. Uh, and, but, but down in Hollywood, it didn't, didn't matter what age you are. You just had to check your right. Well, of course, they knew you were young and stuff. But yeah, so it was a good time. Good stuff. Carl, thanks for joining us again on Talking Metal. And uh, yeah, please keep in touch. Thanks, Mark. We'll talk to you soon. A big thanks to Carl for joining us for the second time in a row on the Talking Metal podcast. Thanks, Carl. Uh, check out uh, Everyone should be sure to check out the Inside Metal documentary series available on Amazon Prime. We'll have it linked through today's show notes where you can go buy the DVD if you are old school and still actually watch DVDs. You know, it's weird. My my uh, the The MacBooks that come out now don't even have CD or DVD players, so... None of them. They haven't since 2014, which is pretty crazy. Kind of a a lost format, if you will, with the streaming and everything else that goes on. Which is why it is great that Inside Metal, the documentary series, is available on Amazon Prime Streaming. That's how I watched it, actually. And it is a great watch, so definitely check it out. Alrighty. On that note, we're going to end today's podcast. Again, please uh, keep in touch with us on Twitter. I have two Twitter accounts. They're both linked through today's show notes. Talking Metal is one. Striegel is the other one. Please follow me at both. And connect me, connect with me on Facebook, too. All righty. And there's also an Instagram account for Talking Metal now, too. All right, guys. This is Rat. Tell the world. Going way back. I believe to way, way back to like 1981. 
Tell the World by Rat. Yeah, actually, it might not be 1981. Just uh, checking it out. It could be 82 or 83. I believe the EP came out in 83. So, um, little correction there. I'm not sure when this was recorded, but it was a long time ago. Let's just put it that way. Tell the World by Rat. 